The following is Class 3 on the Yoga Sutras, given by Ridayananda Das Goswami in fall of 2004 in San Luis Obispo. Sutras 141 to 151 will be covered in this class. This is what Patanjali has to say tonight to us. He begins this topic by saying, China Britter Abhijatasyeva Maner Grihitar Grahana Grahyeshu Tatsta Taranjana Ta Samapati. And uh, Barbara Solonor points out this is one of the few times in this like very terse work that Patanjali uses a, a metaphor. And he says that, uh, I'll put this in English syntax, for the mind, or uh, when uh, the mind, maner, is kshina vritti. Now, if you remember, the, which literally means that the turnings have decreased or waned or been overcome, the Yoga Sutras began with the statement that yoga means uh, chitta vritti nirodha. That was the, right off the bat, the definition of yoga means nirodha, stopping, checking, impeding, the vritti, the turnings of the mind, the mind deviates from clarity and truth. And so now, Patanjali says, for the mind which is kshina vritti, where these turnings have really diminished, so we're making progress here, he says, then the mind uh, is like, there's a word either there, it's from Abhijat it's kind of merged phonetically, but it's like a, a jewel, Correction, where the narrative refers to jewel anyway. It's like a jewel which is literally well born. I mean, this is sort of obviously this is idiomatic. Jaka is born. And literally a well born or a noble jewel, a jewel which is, I put an excellent jewel, idiomatically what it means. Which, this jewel has the power of anjana, anjana ta. It colors or it tinges. Uh, tatsa, literally that standing. It's just like English, that standing, tatsa, whatever stands next to it. That which colors whatever stands, or is, color, whatever, or is colored by, I mean to say, anything that stands next to it. What this means is if you take a jewel, I mean, say a very clear, precious jewel, a really great jewel, a well born jewel, then uh, if you place something in front of it, 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 it reflects that object perfectly, without any distortion. It doesn't add or subtract, it's just like a a perfect transmitter or magnifier and so on. That's what we're talking about. So he says, similarly, the, the mind, when the turnings have ceased, in the act of grihitar, grahana, grahya, which means the perceiver, the perceiving, the perceived, literally the grasper, the grasping, that which is to be grasped. In the sense of perception, grasping in the sense of understanding. So I'm going to put all this, I mean, I'm going to out all these things, I'm going to try to make it more coherent. Anyway, what all this adds up to is samapati, which I translated as accomplished meditation because samapati literally means an accomplishment, like achieving. And so he's referring to accomplished meditation, I think is the way to put it. So I'll review all that again. What he's saying here is that the consciousness, the mind should function as a transparent is a transparent lens, so to speak. So that whatever is near our mind, whatever comes within our proximity, either 
conceptually or a, a or a sensorially a physical object, whatever comes into the proximity of our consciousness, the con the, the consciousness. You have to remember also that in this philosophical system, you are not your mind. The mind is an instrument. You are the soul, and you have a mind. The mind is a faculty, a cognitive faculty that you have, and so therefore the the mind's purpose is and again to put this in the context of this ancient culture. <coughs> To quote from the Gita, we have the, the phrase manakshashani indriyani. The senses, like the eyes and the ears, are six with the mind. So the mind is seen as the pivot, the coordinating facility for all the five senses. For example, right now, you're hearing things because I'm speaking. You're seeing things. You're feeling things because you have a sense of touch. There may be some, there's some aroma or odor here. And, and, and so on, and, and you can taste, I mean, you know, there's always some little taste in your mouth. And yet, how do you focus? How is it that you, you're listening? You're not focusing, let's say, right now, on what it feels like to sit on the blanket, or, or maybe you're not staring at the wall and noticing the color, maybe you are. So, so that faculty which can coordinate all of the sense information that's coming in, organize it into a coherent experience which, in which you can focus or concentrate, that's the mind's function. That's typically in this whole ancient psychology, that's what the mind does. So therefore, when we're talking here about the mind functioning as a transparent, or like a transparent jewel, so it gives you absolutely objective information about whatever you come near, then you have to keep in mind, number one, that's your mind. You are not the mind. The mind is feeding you information. And also the mind coordinates all the sense perceptions. So within that context, it, it sort of, it's a general statement about consciousness. That when your meditation becomes more advanced, you become objective. That your faculties, your sense faculties in your mind become clear and objective. That's basically what he's saying, like a jewel, which is transparent. And can even like a lens, magnify things and, and, and sharpen your perception of them without distorting the object. So that's what uh, potentially is talking about here. It's, it's a sort of common sense. So that's accomplished meditation. And then he says, Etiyayva sa vichara nirvichara sa sukshma vishaya bhyakyata. By this alone, first I'll read my translation, accomplished meditation with and without reflection, with a subtle object, is explained. And he's going to explain uh, what a subtle object is. Maybe I'll read the next one also so you get uh, see what he's talking about. Sukshma vishaya twam chalinga prayavasanam. Being a subtle object amounts to not having a visible mark. In other words, to give a simple example, let's say you have a dream house. You've never found it. It's not some house you actually saw somewhere that you hope to buy someday, but you have in your mind the kind of house you'd like to have. And so, or you'd like to build someday. And so, from, from this Vedic point of view, the house, in a sense, exists in a subtle form called a vyakta. It has the type of, and, and, and then that mental impression kind of gets translated into a real thing in the world. In fact, also in terms of the creation of the universe, the whole universe exists in a subtle form, actually within the mind of God, you could say. And if you know Western philosophy, Barclay's idealism, and going back actually to Augustine, who, who, Augustine was a, a Platonist, really. He read, you know, Plato and Plotinus, and so uh, and so. Uh, 
Quote-unquote all that now. But anyway, there's a statement in the letters of Paul that, uh, that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And so he sees that literally as... Uh, that, that somehow the creation, everything is in God's mind. Or the, and, and Jesus... And, and, and anyway, so this idea that, that everything that exists existed in the mind of God is sort of a perennial philosophical concept. And, and there's something like that in Vedic culture. There's something like that, that before the universe is actually created, everything exists in a subtle form within the mind of the creator and then gradually comes out. And so there's this whole interest in the subtle forms of things. In fact, the, the mind itself is called the sukshma uh, rupa or sharira, the subtle body. So that we have our physical body and the mind is actually called a body, a sukshma, a, a subtle body. And, and so here he's talking about basically, it's, it's almost like when we say in English, gave a little mental about something. Because, I mean, imagine, first of all, if you know the ancient yoga practice, if you're doing this thing, if you're doing the yoga program in ancient times, you're off somewhere in some remote place. As, as it said in Gita Ekaki, you know, secluded, alone. What's that? Uh, in a sacred place, in a very secluded place, probably the Himalayan mountains or at least the foothills. And there's nothing going on. And so you're sitting there for a very long period of time and you, know, you get very mental. Because usually if, if you're up there doing yoga, you had a life before that. You might have had a family and you obviously were born into a family. You might have had some trade or, and, and you decided to take up yoga. Because the yogis were generally... I mean, for the most part, they were celibate, so there weren't like a lot of big extended yoga families up there. They were pretty much, it was a pretty individual thing. And, and, and so people generally had a previous life, and when you get up there and you're practicing, or even nowadays, and you're trying to meditate, you can get very mental. Your mind can prey on you. There's this uh, great line, if you know, hey, I'm a Jane Austen nut, so there's this great line in Persuasion uh, where uh, there's this debate going on at the end whether who is truer in love, men or women, who forgets first and who remembers longest. And so they're debating this, and then, uh, anyways, so then there's this debate between a ship captain, who's a good guy, and then uh, Anne, who's sort of the heroine of the story, and, and they both give arguments for their sex. And so Anne's argument is that, that speaking about early Victorian culture, let's say, around the early part of the 19th century, that we women are generally, you know, we, we stay at home. We don't go out in the world like you men do. You're, you know, you're a ship captain, a naval captain. And she said, because we're always at home, our minds prey on us. And anyway, I just thought that that's one of the arguments. So, so similarly, if you're a yogi up in the mountains, your mind can really get you because there's, you know, you can't go shopping and forget about it. You can't go to a movie. You can't even talk to anyone. <laughs> Anyway, so there, 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 there's this whole world of subtle things. So, what is he saying here? That, um, oh my God, I, thought I skipped a few verses. I was going to ask you to go back and talk to You're in a hurry tonight. I was, I was wondering that too. You guys are so polite. This, this shows we're in San Luis Obispo, right? <laughs> If I was in LA, he would be honking. <laughs> You're all so nice. I apologize, but uh, all right. So now you've got previews of coming attractions. So, so uh, 42. 
In that state of samapati, accomplished meditation, when samapati is filled with imaginings, that's vikalpas, based on knowledge, jnana, of word meanings, shabdartha, it is called accomplished meditation with speculative doubts. And the word uh, which I translate speculative doubts is Vitarka, uh, some with Savitarka. And uh, I wrote down in one of these sheets. Uh, the word, here, here are a few meanings of Vitarka. Vitarka can mean conjecture, supposition, guess, fancy, doubt, especially in a yoga context, doubt and uncertainty. So I kind of I tried to synthesize those meanings and certainly to include the special yoga meaning with my translation, speculative doubts. And, again, your mind praying on you, and, and these are imaginings. If you have this accomplished meditation, it's interesting, you, you sort of, how should I put it? You have conquered or, or diminished the ordinary mundane turnings of the mind. I mean, ordinary things like, like getting a little sleepy during your meditation, or remembering the girl you left behind, or the boy you left behind, or... Or getting you know, angry at someone, yeah, remembering some old grudge or something, or it's all this stuff. So you've kind of conquered that, and you're seeing things clearly. However, and this is the point: to some extent, you've intellectualized your way into this accomplished meditation. I mean, as we know, sometimes we say to ourselves, you know, it's really stupid that I'm suffering over that person. I mean, why should I care about that person, or why should I care what that person did to me? And, and you start to sort of almost like, you know, rationally, intellectually try to free yourself from a, an unreasonable suffering. Like it's not, no, I shouldn't worry about that. Or, or why am I so worried? I'm obsessing about that. And so if you think about it, for people that kind of are intelligent, a lot of times what we do with suffering or anxiety or just not pleased with the state of consciousness we're in, for whatever reason, is we, we, we try to re, you know, be reasonable about it. We keep preaching to ourselves, you know, don't be foolish, don't be silly about that, and, and so on. And so that's kind of what he's talking about here. That you've gotten yourself into a state of accomplished meditation by using your reason and your intelligence. But at a certain point, that itself is kind of like a lot of background noise in your head. And, and, and you're not just, as you said, you're in the now, you're not just totally experiencing life because you've got all this machinery, rational machinery that's kind of keeping you aloft. And so, yes? Uh, I just wondered which words refer to, what, uh, first of all, jhana, which is... Oh, jhana? Oh, it's, is it jhana? Well, it's pronounced J-N, but it's kind of like the Sanskrit lasagna, where, you know, G-N is pronounced okay. L-Y. So... And it's funny because when, when you go into like Sanskrit courses in Little Good University, the professors are kind of real purists and they say jnana. Oh. But in India, for I don't know how long, everyone says jnana. In fact, they even write it sometimes G-Y-A-N. Oh. Related to the Greek gnosis, like knowledge. Oh. Like agnostic, not knowing. So it is related to jnana uh, and yoga. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, jnana is just the common word knowledge. Oh. I think it's probably, even our English word knowledge, I think is related to it. Janana, knowledge, probably related. And then, uh, which is word meaning? Shabda. Shabda, which can mean sound and also means word, and artha means meaning. 
or value? Thank you. Sure. Shabda artha, jnana, word meaning knowledge. So now Patanjali is talking about this samapati, this accomplished meditation, but it's with vitarika, all this thinking and conjecturing and reasoning about it. And he says it's based on imagining, because if you think about it, we, we think verbally and we think about, you know, when we reason, we're, we're, we're kind of talking to ourselves in our head about things. And so it's, it's not, in other words, we're not in the now, we're not experiencing life that big shala tree over there to give a nice Himalayan tree, you know, hardwood tree. I'm not just seeing that shala tree, I'm not just seeing the river go by, I'm not just experiencing the fact that I'm alive as part of God. I'm thinking, well, you know, I shouldn't really, and, and so it's, it's a whole verbal, rational thing. And so that's the vikalpa, we're imagining all kinds of dialogues. You know, I should have told her, you know, why didn't I tell her, you know, why didn't he, and so on, like, and so, that's what he's talking about. It's a real practical common sense term. Then, Smriti Parishuddha. Smithi Parishuddha, Swarupa Shunyevartha Mata Nirvasa Nirvitarka. When memory is fully purified and only the object of perception shines forth, only the mind's object appears and one's accomplished meditation, devoid of its own identity, has no speculative doubt. So, Smriti is memory. Shuddhi is purity. And uh, Pari is just a Greek peri, like perimeter, around, periscope, and everything. And so it, it, it uses a prefix in Sanskrit to mean completely, you know, all around. So parishu and parishudho is just a locative case meaning when that happens. When there is complete purity of memory. And your samapti, your accomplished meditation is eva, like shunya, as if it is devoid swarupa of its own form. And I'll explain what all this means. And then artha mata nirvasa, and only the the object literally shines forth or appears. That is called near without vitarka, all the speculative doubts. So what does this mean? When we are engaged in vitarka, like reasoning our way to detachment and, and trying to you know kind of reason with ourselves to let go of things and so on, there's all this discursive, verbal, logical stuff going on. Which is obviously based on things you remember, because you're up there in the mountains meditating, it's like, you know, why didn't I tell him that, and why did I do this, and I should never have... whatever. Yeah, and so, therefore, Patanjali says, when your memory is completely purified, your memory is pure, so there's no bad memories, there's no bad stuff in there anymore. The bad stuff, you let go of the bad stuff. Then, the mind which has a structure, which, which has its own dynamic, it thinks, you know, and, 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 and so on. It's as if it doesn't have its own form. In other words, you're not bringing the mind's structure to the experience. I don't even go into uh, Kant's theory of the a priori structures of the mind which are necessary for experience. But you know Kant, I won't go there now because it's... We all know that. Yeah. But, <laughs> because it, it would be an amazing comparison, but... So, so the mind, it's, it's, it's as if, how should I put it, the perfect eyeglasses are in a sense eyeglasses that you never notice. 
I mean, they can be so light, like, you know, they weigh zero pounds or something. In other words, if you could have glasses that don't weigh anything and you never notice them, you just perceive that's the perfect set of glasses. So the perfect mind is a mind that, in a sense, doesn't bring anything extraneous to the experience. It doesn't color your experience with its own structures and stuff that's going on. It just acts transparently so that you can perceive what's really out there. So, is that mind? Because I, I, I guess I associate mind with just being. Right. Well, mind, yeah, let me talk a little more about that. I mentioned it. Mind is not used in the way it's used in the Western tradition, where, for example, for the Greeks, the word suke, which now we would say psyche, for the event, suke, meant just sort of, it could be the spirit or the soul, the self, it meant consciousness. The Sanskrit thing was much more precise. So that even in the Gita, you have, first you have the senses. Well, well, then you have a sense object, just like matter, material things, you know, visible things, forms, color, uh, forms and sounds and aromas and so on. Then you have the senses. The senses are organized around, or, or around the mind. The mind is the center of the senses in this conception. Coordinate, like, again, like right, in order for you to have a sane, coherent experience, you have to be coordinating your, because all the senses are, are giving you data at every moment. So the mind is, you know, coordinating it. That's the mind. And it's the mind which, which coordinates sense data because the mind likes things and doesn't like, like things and, and feels like it and doesn't feel like it. And that's the mind. It judges. Yeah, it can judge. Exactly. Like, that's good, that's bad. But then the intelligence is the rational part. Above the mind, this is interesting, this same as Plato's Republic, you know, Above the mind is the intelligence, which is reasonable. Like, typical example, the mind says, or let's say the mind says, hey man, I, 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 I could go use a drink right now. You know, in the pejorative sense of the term. And, and your intelligence says, you don't need that. You've got to drive right now. You're going to kill someone. You're going to mutilate yourself. You know, you don't need to. So, so the intelligence is rational, cool, calm, and collected, reasoning. And so whereas the mind may be judgmental, the intelligence will actually be reasonable about it and say, well, is it fair to say that so-and-so is this or that? So you have the, you have the sense objects, the senses, the mind, the intelligence, and above everything, the soul, the person, the self, with all these faculties. So... Uh, Actually, Patanjali in these verses doesn't actually use the word mind. He's talking about meditation. You can say, say it's about chitta or consciousness. But the mind really is kind of the center of yoga practice. And, uh, but here we're talking sort of in general about consciousness and, and imagining yogi, imagining what's really going on. The yogi sitting there, he or she is sitting there. And uh, you know, the senses are used to seeing things and hearing things. You have to focus inward. And you've got all these memories. And you're, and you're also trying to be intellectualize your way out of miserable attachments and all this is going on. It, it, you know, it's, it's like a real rodeo. And uh, <laughs> all this is going on. So then Patanjali says that but when your memory is purified, then the mind or consciousness, you could say consciousness or even intelligence, is not bringing its own structures and machinery into the experience. And... Uh, Actually, let's, yeah, okay. 
And artamata, the word arta, remember the word meaning? The word meaning from the previous oh, yes, verse? Right. Yeah, Shabda artha. So artha means, it can mean money, because sense it means value or object or, or meaning. It means all those things. So, for purpose. So artha matra. Matra, by the way, related to the word meter or metric, the measure. And it's a way in Sanskrit of saying only that, like only this much, no more, no less. Just that measure. So artha matra. Just the artha, just the object of consciousness, just that. Nirvasa literally shines out or appears. So the object itself appears to you as the self, as the soul, and the mind or intelligence, the conscious is not, you know, imposing its own machinery and stuff on it. Just the object, just the facts. That's what it means, its own identity. What's that? Its own identity. Exactly, its own form, because the word identity, Swarupa there, uh, where it says Shunya, which means devoid, devoid of Swarupa, Rupa's form, its own form, it's Swarupa. It's, it's not imposing its own form on the experience. The object only is coming out, is appearing to you. And that is called Samapati, a complex meditation near Vitarka, near, without without the Vitarka, without all these speculative doubts and conjectures and reasonings and analyses and everything. So is that clear? Mm-hmm. Now we come to the, the pre-talked about verse. So, Eta Eva, by this accomplished meditation alone, in other words, only by this one, which doesn't have all the mental stuff and intellectual stuff going on, it can be sa-vichara or near-vichara. It gets very technical because vichara is kind of a synonym of vitarka. But it means kind of like pondering, contemplating, pondering. It's not... The word tarka, by the way, by itself, to tell you the difference. The first word tarka is also the common sense word for logic. It's a common word for logic, reasoning. Nyaya or tarka. And so vitarka is more like meditation where you're really thinking about things and analyzing and why did I desire that and, and is that pure or maybe that's not pure and, and you know and, and just analyzing your former attachments and everything. Whereas vichara is more kind of like pondering things. It's, it's more of a... But it, it's somewhat synonymous. So, so it's like different stages of becoming free of this, of this worrying about your meditation and worrying about your own happiness on the path. So then Patanjali says that by this meditation without the vitarka, there still can be vichara. So I'm going to read you uh, some of the meanings of vichara to try to give you some idea. Because getting into subtleties here, nuances. Vichara can mean pondering, considering, reflecting, examining, investigating. It can also mean doubt or hesitation. So it, it, it overlaps with vichara. But still... Uh, Patanjali is saying that there's a, 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 another stage where there may be or may not be vichara and there's sushma vishaya, subtle object. Vishaya also means like an object. By this alone, accomplished meditation with and without reflection with a subtle object is explained. Uh, if I can just take back something into this sense, I, just, I, I, think, I think what Patanjali is really saying here is that what he's just explained, yakyata, what he's just explained, 
is that in your meditation, sometimes you're thinking about things, sometimes you're not. So it looks like Vichara is just like a synonym here of Vitarka. The same is now, by this alone, the, uh, is explained how you can have a meditation which has sukshma vishayas. Because again, Vitarka and Vichara, are, it, 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 it's not about actually seeing something in the moment. It's not like you're meditating, but you're, you know, some little pretty, a little bird flew by and that caught your eye and you're watching the bird. Vitarka and Vichara are things going on in your head. And so, you're, in a sense, you, you've gotten beyond the physical world. You're no longer engaged in, you know, in, in trying to enjoy the physical world. I mean, a person at this stage, in, in this ancient yoga practice, would certainly be celibate. And so, and so there's, there's no there's, there's no sexual dimension to this this ancient practice, and there's no social life, and there's no ancient Vedic shopping malls or, or whatever they did, or whatever the ancient equivalent of bowling alleys is, or golf courses. I mean, they had all kinds of so. In other words, you're not doing any of that stuff. You're just sitting there in your head, and this is what he's talking about because you're no longer grossly going after the physical world. And not even not even desiring the mind, not even getting distracted, like I'm overcome by lust or greed or jealousy or you know all this stuff. That's not happening to me. But in order to get free of that stuff, I've had to think about it a lot and analyze it and, and, and monitor my meditation. Like, was that a pure thought I just had? And what's happening now? And, and, and so what potentially is saying is that when you get to the point that you're not grossly entangled in the material world, either by actually doing things or even by having them bother you and trouble you and agitate you, you're beyond that. So it's samatpati, it's an accomplished meditation. You've gotten beyond that. But to get beyond that, you've had to really do a lot of thinking about it and, and reasoning and worrying and doubting because you have to doubt, like, was that pure, was that not pure? And then he's saying that you can get to the point even beyond that mental stuff. So that's kind of what he's talking about here. That, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. It's sort of, that's actually what he's talking about. That's why it's, that's why it's sushma, subtle, because it's at the level of just reasoning, analyzing these things, as opposed to trying to enjoy them and being agitated by them. And then he says, Taiva, Sabija Samadhi. These accomplished meditations alone are Samadhi with seed. So it's a state of absorption, it's a type of trance or absorption. But as we know, I mean only too well. Let's say for I mean just give a, a common example in this world, you know, someone loved and lost, or, or 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 you were hurt by someone with whom you had a relationship. And so, you know, you just sort of think about it occasionally, like eighteen hours a day for about thirteen years. <laughs> so so the idea is that that we remember our old attachments or, you know, something we left behind or whatever. And then it, it's like a chain. It's, it's, it's where you think about it and you can't stop and then because you thought about it today, you know, you told yourself you wouldn't think about it today, so then you think about it tomorrow and it just, it perpetuates itself. That's the Bija thing. It's, it's mental and intellectual conditioning where we develop mental habits. And so, when you're meditating and you're worrying about your attachments, and worrying about the, the, the suffering, because, you know, this world kind of can hurt us. 
And, and so when you're trying to meditate, and you're trying to get free of that stuff and push off from it and get a, a new life and, and all that. And so that very process of worrying and, and struggling itself becomes a mental habit that perpetuates itself and ultimately is something you have to transcend to get the state of just pure consciousness where you're, there's nothing, you're just perceiving things objectively. So that's what this topic really is. That's the bija. This like, it, it keeps... Because think, think of, the, of what a bija really is, a seed. There's a tree or a plant. It grows, it puts out a seed. The seed produces another plant. Which puts out seeds, that produces another plant. So it's this perpetuating the same mental habits. And you have to get beyond it. Yes, yeah, exactly. Where, where it's not no longer a struggle or an analysis, it's just clear consciousness. Oh, but it is a type of samadhi mm -hmm. with the seed. It is because it's successful. Samadhi has the sense, it sounds in Sanskrit, also kind of like successful accomplished, so you really are in higher consciousness. But it's almost like the difference between, let's say, let, let, let's say having this real noisy old airplane that makes us, you know, real loud engines, as opposed to just being able to fly. So, so that's, I like that analogy. Mm -hmm. Somehow just descended. So, so I think the sabija samadhi, or, with, or the sabitarika, or sabichara, summing with, is you are in higher consciousness, but there's, there's all these engines going on, all these intellectual and mental engines going on that are keeping you aloft. And, and if you kind of slip, and, 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 and if you forget to remind yourself why you don't want to go back to that situation, it may start to kind of seduce you a little bit. So you've got to keep the engines going. <coughs> and so when you get to the point where you're just, you know, like, volatile, <laughs> you're just flying you're just there and the engine, you don't need the engines anymore that's the, that's the pure soul the pure soul doesn't need all these rational mental engines to stay up in the air Glide. yeah so uh, the nirvichara vaishara dhyatma prasada in mental clarity without reflection the higher self finds felicity. Hope you all will accept that somewhat Victorian word that I like, but felicity. The higher self finds felicity, real happiness. Okay, there's a lot going on here. Vaisharadya uh, means clarity. Clarity. So, and near vichara, in the clarity or mental clarity, which is near vichara, which you're not worrying about things, you're not mentally, intellectually struggling to stay up there. It's just nirvichara vasharadya. There is adhyatma prasada. Actually, I'll use the board here because these are really cool words in Sanskrit. And these are very... Atma, you should know the word atma means self or soul. And the prefix adi and the I here becomes a Y just for euphonics to make it sound better. But the original is... Literally, mean, this means over... Like the, well, like, uh, who's that guy? Uh, oh my God. Nietzsche. You know, he talks about his uber mensch, the, the over man or the over person, you know, in the sense of higher. And so, 
So uber, this is kind of like the word adi, means over or above. So, and so a simple translation would be the higher self, the adhyatma, because the word atma is also a reflexive pronoun in Sanskrit. Like if you have, let's say, like self, a self-service island in, a, in an ancient gas station, it would be the you know, atma seva, self-service. So, so, so they, use, they use the word self in Sanskrit exactly as we do, as a reflexive pronoun. Self-service, self-taught, etc., etc. So when they want to be clear that we're talking about the soul, this is a spiritual context, we're talking about the spiritual self, they often will use the word adi, higher, like the higher self, meaning we're really talking about the soul here. So that's the word adhyatma. And then uh, prasada is also the word which is used in the tradition to mean grace. It's, it means happiness or tranquility, but in the sense of a sublime state of happiness. So in India, for example, in, in these in Hindu traditions or the Vaishnava tradition, prasada refers to spiritual food. When you, you, you take food and you never... If you know your Homer, by the way, in the Iliad and the Odyssey, you'll know that in ancient Greek civilization, also no one ever eats or drinks anything unless it's been offered to the gods. They wouldn't imagine it. So, so in India, uh, you have these two words, boga, which means enjoyment, just means food that hasn't been offered to God. And then prasada is literally grace or food that's been offered to God. So it means, it, it, it's, it means clarity in the sense of a sublime state of grace. And you really hear that in the word prasad. I had to pick a word, so I picked clarity or whatever I picked here. But uh, is prasada is it clarity or is it um, felicity? felicity? Yeah, felicity. That's right, felicity. But but it, it's a very rich word in Sanskrit. It's all all that is there, sort of a state of grace and and, and a, where, you, where you've been blessed and you're happy and you're peaceful and clear. It really means all that. It sounds like all. There is clarity, mental clarity, though. Yeah, that's the Vaisharadya. The Vaisharadya. So when you get to the point of meditation where it's near vichara, you're not worried about things, you're not struggling mentally and intellectually, then your higher self experiences this state of grace, this happiness, this, this uh, tranquility, peace. That's what it says. And then the next one, Ritambara Tatra Pragya. In that state, wisdom bears truth. And the word bara related to our word bear, by the way, to bear, to carry. Pragya, wisdom. I, yes, wisdom, pragya, becomes Ritambara. It bears truth. The word rita, by the way, I, I should, there are different words in Sanskrit that mean truth. Uh, I won't go into all of them here, but the, the common word like tell the truth, don't lie, is satyam. And here the word ritta is actually a, uh, it has an interesting history. Ritta, which here has an M because it's the object of the verb. Ritta is a, is a very old word found in the Vedas and, and it's considered to be a word which sort of is the forerunner to the word dharma, which you don't find as much in the, in the oldest Sanskrit literature as you find in still very old but not as old Sanskrit literature. So, so Ritta is generally explained as meaning a type of cosmic truth, a, 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 a principle which, which somehow makes the universe real. 
And so it's a truth in the sense of a, of a, of a serious, profound, cosmic truth. So is Ratham truth, or is it... Yeah, yeah, yeah Ritham. Yeah, yeah. I mean, technically, there's a vowel R, like, like an English word bird. If you think of the English word bird, like birdie, the vowel is the R. It's not really an I, it's not beard. It's really bird. The R is actually a vowel, bird, or curd, or... And all, you know, so fur. The word fur is not fur. It's spelled F-U-R. But it's actually fur. The vowel is the R. So if you wanted to be a phonetic purist, which I sometimes am when I'm not in a, in a social context, uh, then you really pronounce this sort of like Urta, Urta. But no one does it. Even in India, they kind of spell it R-I, and like Krishna, the word Krishna. It's, it's really a vowel R. And then bara is like our English word bear, to carry. Those words are related. Bara and bear. So bearing truth. And so what it means is, and, and so pra, I really want to like, sort of share with you all it, it, what, what's really going on here. Gya is, just the, is the root to know, which we get jnana. So gya is just you know, the verb to know. A knower. And pra is, is like English forth, or pro, like, it has, it's, it's sort of like, it makes, it sort of energizes the verb. And so pragya is sort of like penetrating knowledge. That's kind of what it sounds like, penetrating knowledge, which we translate as wisdom. Would, could you say that pra again? It means like forth, it energizes, it's a prefix. It, it, we do this, yeah, yeah, like pro, like pro-knowledge, or not professional, but in the sense of like in favor of knowledge or penetrating or going forth. Mm-hmm. Penetrating by the way, English, because its relation to Sanskrit, has the same basic structure. Like take, to give a simple example, take our stem, vert, V-E-R-T. Then you can have invert, subvert, pervert, convert, revert. So we have the same structure in English, but we have a verbal stem and all these prefixes. And that's from Sanskrit. So the pro is the... Oh, yeah. it's from Sanskrit. Yeah. So, so, so the pra is the prefix. prefix. And then ya is the verb to know from which you get young. Do they have suffixes also? Yeah. Like, like the anam, from which you get yang, which makes a neuter noun. But they're generally not semantic as much. They just like make a noun out of a verbal root. But, but the, the semantic <coughs> elements of really color and give meaning, they're, they're often prefixes. So what's really being said here is that when you get this penetrating knowledge, knowledge which really gets into it, then it bears, it carries with it this cosmic truth. So that's kind of all in the words. That's pretty heavy one. Yeah. And tatra therein, meaning in this meditation which is free of the, all the mental machinery. That's <coughs> Yeah. Yeah, tatra, in that meditation, tatra means in that meditation, pragya, Wisdom or penetrating knowledge bears cosmic truth. It, it, it brings cosmic truth. What time is it, by the way? I don't want to abuse your time. Oh, can you go a few more minutes? So, we will finish this chapter then. Shutanumana pragya bhyam anya vishaya visheshartatva. That's fascinating. What that means is that. Uh, if you're sort of like an epistemology fan like I am, because it has a special purpose, 
This wisdom has a different focus than the wisdom of scripture and logical inference. So I will, it is now popular to say in college classes, unpack this. So, there's a very standard classification of knowledge of different kinds of evidence which is being appealed to here. It's very standard in this ancient culture. So that the lowest kind of knowledge would be called uh, oh my God. Ding, the show. Uh, Pratyaksha. Which, which means sense perception. In other words, you just see something. Because it's so illusory. I mean, you can see a straw bend in a cup in a glass of water, right? I mean, so that kind of stuff, where just, you just see something. There's no reasoning behind it. And then there's anumana, which is interesting. So, so the first word is, uh, is sense perception. Then anumana, which is given here. Anu means following or consequent. And, and mana is from the verb man to think. Like mana. And so it means like sort of thinking about it afterwards. In other words, you saw something with your senses, but then you think about it. Well, is that straw really bent? So that would be anumana. And then the highest form of evidence in this ancient system is hearing from an authority. And here, this interesting point, which is also made in relation actually to Augustinian philosophy, that in general, that sort of like late classical theology, that authority here doesn't mean someone that has the power to insist that you accept something. It's not a political idea of authority. It's the natural authority that comes when you really know something. So let's say you really know how to teach yoga. So whether someone believes you or not, you have a natural authority because you know it. So that's what's being... It's that kind of authority. Yeah. And it's the word shruta, literally that which is heard, which is a, a very common name for the Vedas. So the idea is if you hear from enlightened people who truly know, you can get the highest knowledge because by our sense perception and by our reasoning about what we experience, we can't achieve the highest knowledge which comes from people that are really there. Like Krishna says in the Gita, what is that famous verse that uh, those who have knowledge will teach you knowledge. Literally, those who have knowledge, knowledge will teach. And so, but here, uh, he makes a very interesting statement, potentially. He says that, that this samapati, or this pragya, this wisdom we're talking about, this meditation, has anya, another, anya is another, vishaya, another object, another, yeah, it has another object, then the objects of Pragya, wisdom, pragya byam, is the dual, there's a dual concept, from the two wisdoms based on shruta and anumana. Is what he's saying. So he's saying, apart from the two wisdoms, pragya byam, based on shruta and anumana, hearing from authority and, and reasoning about things, apart from those two wisdoms, this wisdom, which he just talked about in 148, this wisdom has anya vishaya, it has another object, because, because it has a different purpose. Again, the word artha, vishesha, is distinct 
or different or special. So it can mean also because it has a special purpose. That's the word common word for special. Special is the same. This is a fascinating statement. I mean, if you think about what Patanjali is saying, well, first of all, what he's not saying, he's not saying that this wisdom that we're doing here on the yoga path. Because Patanjali is very aware that, that he's just explaining one path. It's like, let's say you teach at Cal Poly. You're aware there are many other colleges in the country, and you're not saying that this is the only college, but this is what we do here. And so Patanjali is saying that there are other pragyas. There are other deep understandings. There are other wisdoms based on shruta, just hearing from... Because you can take up yoga or you can, let's say, very faithfully and devotedly hear, let's say, Bhagavad Gita, which according to the Gita will also enlighten you if you hear with devotion and faith. And so, or some, you can reason it, that's the jnana yoga. In a sense, the anumana pragya, the reasoning wisdom, is the jnana yoga the yoga path of, of, of knowledge. And so Patanjali is not saying this is better. He's just saying we have a special purpose here. Or we, or we have a different purpose here, which is to reach a particular meditative state as opposed to uh, just, uh, just by devotion and, or, or other things. And therefore, uh, because of that, there's a different object in, in, in our in our wisdom. It's, it's just, it's a different approach. We're going about, we're in a different terrain. Focus. Yeah. Direction. Yeah. Because the word vishaya also means a terrain or region. Mm. It's just, just like, for example, we can talk in English intelligibly about mental terrain. And it's that, that's what he's, that's the word he's used. It's, it's a different, because, because we have a, we're in, we're in another mental terrain here. And, and, and because we have a special purpose, we have a distinct purpose, which is to achieve enlightenment through this yoga path, as opposed to devotion or you know all these other things. That inference, in inference, it, logical inference is that uh, anumana. Is that sense sensory perception also, or uh, the, the word for no the word for sense perception is um, pratyaksha by, by through each sense. So pratyaksha sense, but the, again, it, just like, it's the same thing I told you before. You have the senses grouped around the mind. So the sense is grouped around the mind. So similarly, uh, first you have the, the sense perception, and then ultimately you have anumana reasoning about your experiences, and reasoning about the na- and reasoning about what's beyond your experience, and, and, and so on. And that's inference. Yeah, inference. To give a perfect example, I mean, a perfect example is Plato. We're, we're, let's say, for example, I just did this. So let's say here's a triangle. And you're doing the Pythagorean theorem. Let's say this is a side A, side B, side C, and this is a right angle. So A squared plus B squared equals C squared. You know, the Pythagorean theorem. So now, Plato's whole point is this. That this is not, no matter how well you draw a triangle, and this is not a great triangle, but no matter how well you draw a triangle, it's never a perfect triangle. It's never perfect. It's never exactly the triangle this theorem refers to. He said, but Plato says, this is one of the basic points of Plato's philosophy, in your, with your intelligence, with your mind, in, in inference, you can sort of see in your mind's eye, to use the word, you can see in your mind's eye a perfect t- triangle that you can never draw. 
And so it's an intelligible, a perfect triangle is intelligible, but not perceptible by the senses. And, and so, for example, justice. You can't see a justice. We reason our way to justice. First of all, the value of it, by we, we conclude that, yes, we want justice, it's a positive value, and we can reason about what is justice in a particular case, what is fair in this situation. So that, that's unimana, that's not about things you can see or touch in the world. Yeah, so sense perception is something physical that has a form that exactly. you can touch and... Touch, you touch, or hear, or see, or smell, or taste. Those or the inference is just in your mind. Exactly. And considered higher. Is it imagination? Not necessarily, because, for example, we would probably want to say that there really is justice. There really is such a thing as justice, and there really is, at some spiritual level, an equality among all creatures. Which something by our senses, we can never find two creatures that are the same. And yet, the notion of equality is something which is beyond the mere, let's say, animal perception of other creatures. Love, compassion, justice, equality, these are all things that we can infer, but you can't perceive them with your senses. So all these things were known back then. And, 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 and potentially assumes that you know that. So, so he's saying that um, He's acknowledging that there are other paths, which he respects, but we have a special purpose here, and therefore we're in a different mental terrain, which is literally what he's saying. And then maybe maybe we'll just finish up this chapter today. And uh, so, Tadja Samskaro, Anya Samskara Pratibandhi. This is good news. A mental impression born of this wisdom obstructs other mental impressions. So the samskaras, this is a technical yoga word which you see a lot in yoga literature. The samskara is, I mean, I'm almost tempted to use the Freudian word which would be the, uh, what what is it, the id. You know, it's it's like all this stuff and this unconscious, subconscious stuff that's that's driving you. I mean, it's obviously not just precisely the end, which has a special Freudian sense, but the idea that because of the choices I've made in the past and because of the experiences I've had in the past, not only in this life, but in many lives, I am predisposed emotionally and, 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 and... intellectually and, and even physically to act in certain ways. I'm kind of like pre I'm conditioned. That's samskara. Yeah, that's samskara. That those subtle or subliminal impressions which and sometimes predisposed against things. Like let's say someone has a phobia. Let's say in a past life someone fell off a cliff. And in this life they're afraid of heights. Or let's say in a past life someone had a very wonderful relationship with a particular person. And they're predisposed towards people with certain personality traits or kind of, and they don't know why. So it's just all that conditioning. It's all the effect of our previous experiences and choices that predispose us. In, in a sense, the samskaras are the way that karma manifests. And, and, and not only, but in, at least at a psychological level. I mean, karma also means things just happen to you, or you're born in a certain family, or 
you have a certain body, a certain whatever. But also, in the sense that you're predisposed, that you're inclined, that you like certain things and don't like certain things, and easily become attached to certain kinds of people and, and, and can't stand other kinds of people. And, and just all that stuff is the samskaras, these, these subtle some unconscious memories. So, what potentially is saying is that when you're in the state of meditation, you're coming to this wisdom, and it also becomes a mental habit. It also becomes an experience, and every experience kind of has some mental momentum. It's just like, you know, if, if let's say if I take one step toward you, there's momentum, so it takes another energy to stop. Otherwise, there's, you sort of, you know, yeah. So, I mean, it, well, well, Newton said it. He said that, that every object at, re at rest tends to stay at rest, and every object in motion tends to continue in motion unless something stops it. So that, that also is true for mental motions and emotional motions and intellectual motions and, and all that. And so as you get into meditation, that becomes your mental world or, or you start to develop that habit, and, 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 and that starts to perpetuate itself, the habit or the, uh, the custom or the tendency to be in higher consciousness, that samskara will take the place of and, and block the old samskaras. Krishna actually says this in, 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 a, in a very nice way. Krishna in the Gita, he, in the second chapter, he says that people try to give up sense objects just by fasting or just giving them up, renouncing things. He says, but the taste is still there. You still have a taste for it. It's like, for example, let's say someone is trying to control sex desire, and so therefore they fast, which is a, an ancient strategy for controlling sex desire in monastic traditions and everything. So someone's fasting. Now, when you fast and you're kind of getting a little thin, I mean, you're not going to be very lusty or greedy or anything. You're just going to be kind of <laughs> hanging out. Because <laughs> that's, you know, because your body is weakened. So you may not experience that strong lust or, or, or whatever because you've been fasting, but as soon as you eat, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like you're back in action. And so that's what Krishna, literally what Krishna's saying there. He says, but then he says, if you see something, if you experience something higher, a higher pleasure, then you actually give up the lower things. In a sense, Patanjali is saying something similar. That, the, that we have all these memories and experiences, but if you start to have a whole tradition in your life of higher consciousness and experiences and feelings about it and thinking about it, it blocks all the bad stuff, all the 